Good evening, South Loop. How are we doing tonight? Doing all right? Hey, how many of you, by a show of hands, how many of you have filled out a, uh, a resume, done a resume or filled out an application recently? Anybody done that? Okay, so a few of you. All right, that's good. Um, so what would you think if, if, the, if the people that you were applying to asked you to write down on your resume or in your job application the, the worst thing that you'd ever done? How, do you, how far do you think you would get in your job uh, hunt if you had to write down the, like the worst thing about yourself? And, and what I'm not talking about is like um, what Michael Scott did in the office where when he's doing the interview, they ask him, uh, like, what's your greatest weakness? And his response was, I work too hard and I care too much, something to that extreme, right? Yeah, I care too much and I try too hard, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the real nitty-gritty dirt, right? The things that uh, you'd be most ashamed of. Like, can you imagine putting that on your resume, filling that out on a job description? Like, probably no one would want to do that because we understand what would happen. Like, we'd get rejected. We wouldn't even get a phone call. The truth is, is that employers actually um, report that 85% of people lie on their resume, 85% 85% of people lie on their resume. Now, it could be anything from a job title to the, the dates of your employment, or it could be like skills that you've added, like, you know, I haunt Wolverines with a bow staff or something. I don't know what it is, but you might, you might tend to over-exaggerate a bit on your resume, but 85%, which means some of you in this room have lied on your resume or a job application. You, you should frankly be ashamed of yourselves, but... Um, but if you can imagine just writing the worst thing about yourself down. The crazy thing is that in our story tonight and what we're looking at in this passage in Mark chapter 2 is that the resume of Levi is almost exactly that. It is probably the worst resume that I have ever seen. And I've looked at hundreds of resumes over uh, my career. This is by far one of the worst resumes of all time. Like, it is bad. But let me start by saying this, and that is is that the only thing that qualifies us to be a disciple of Jesus is that we're sinners. It's the only thing that qualifies us. Now, that that seems like such an upside-down, countercultural kind of thing to say, but that's exactly what the kingdom of God looks like, is the things that are most vile about who we are the sinners that we actually are is the thing that actually qualifies us to become a follower and disciple of Jesus. And the life of Levi actually displays that beautifully. And so I want to talk about this. I want to, I want to talk about who this Levi is. Um, his name, and sometimes I'll interchange this, is that his name was changed to Matthew the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, and so you'll hear me say Levi or Matthew kind of interchangeably tonight. But I want to make sure you understand it's the same person. I'm not forgetting that his name is Levi. So Levi is a tax collector. We read that um, when we started with our scripture reading. But this, this word sinner that's, um, that's used about him is actually has somewhat of a double meaning. It does mean that he was a sinner, that he was someone that had broken the moral law, right? So he was an immoral person, but it also implies that he also was a sinner against the uh, scribal law. 
So he would have been one who broke, uh, did, uh, broken and did not observe um, the Old Testament law. So it's a bit of a double meaning, but let's get down to exactly who this Levi was and what made him such a, a vile sinner, the kind of person that you would never hire. So there are actually two kinds of tax collectors that we have in Jesus' day. The first one is what we call a gabbai. And a gabbai is a tax collector who collects general tax. This is, this is just kind of the normal tax that would be somewhat accessible in our culture. So a general tax a gabbai would collect would be uh, like real estate tax or an estate tax or income tax, those kinds of things. So, so we, have, we have tax collectors that are gabbai. The other kind of tax collector is a tax collector called a moki. And a moki is one who doesn't just collect general tax, but he, he actually collects all kinds of taxes. He, he's the one that taxes everything. So it would be um, someone that would tax a, uh, a cart with, that's hauling something. Um, so he's collecting tax on an axle or wheels. He's collecting um, tax on how many legs an animal has. He's taxing things that you have um, caught in the sea. He's, he's taxing everything. It, it's a bit like Chicago, right? Like you get taxed on everything to the extreme in this city. And that's a little bit of what the Moki did, is the Mokis, they would, they would tax everything. And so because of that, they were pretty unpopular. They put tolls on roads and on bridges and, and just about everything that you could imagine. Packages, letters, anything. So these guys were the worst. These Mokis were the worst because they weren't fixed taxes. They could just go around and tax whatever they wanted to. Now, there was actually two levels of Mokis. There was a great Moki and there was a little Moki. The great Moki was the kind of guy who sits up in his big house in the hill, right? And he uh, has everything taxed, but he doesn't want to get his hands dirty. He's like, I'm just going to oversee kind of my crew, and they're going to tax all these random things, but, but he's going to sit in the big house, and he's going to make sure that the job gets done. But the little Mokis, those are the ones that get their hands dirty. This is kind of like the mafia of Galilee. Like, these guys are the ones who, they have no problem taxing people. They'll set up a, uh, you know, set up a stand in the road or next to the sea, and they have no problem taxing every single thing that there are. And so, and, and they weren't afraid to, to strong-arm people. They had no problem doing that. The way in which you got an opportunity to be a tax collector is, is you would petition, you would, you would uh, it was a little bit like a, a franchise. So imagine Chick-fil-A, right? If you wanted to own a Chick-fil-A, you have to come up with a lot of cash, right? Property, all that kind of stuff. So if you want to be a tax collector in Rome for, for the Roman government, then you would have to uh, apply for basically a franchise to be a tax collector. The difficult thing is that that was gone to the highest bidder, so they usually had a little bit of cash. But if you wanted to become a tax collector, it was a really good gig. Like You could make a ton of money doing this. The problem is, is that in order to be a gabbai or to be a moki, you essentially had to sell your soul. Everything about you that you held dear was gone once you became a tax collector. 
The interesting th uh, thing about Levi is that his name is actually tied to some pretty important events within history, right? Within church history. So he's named after one of Jacob's son. He's born to Leah. So he's Jewish, obviously, which makes what he did to get this franchise to become a tax collector even more vile. Essentially, what he's done is he said, I'm going to ignore everything about my Jewishness, everything that I hold dear in my family, everything that, uh, that I hold dear in friendship, and I'm going to sell my soul to the Roman government so that I can become a tax collector. This guy was the worst of the worst of the worst. He's not a Gabbai. He's not a guy that's, that's, that's collecting real estate tax. That's not who Levi is. And he is not a great Moki. This guy is a little Moki, and he is the worst. We know that because he's set up a booth in the middle of the road, and he's collecting taxes. This, this guy is a complete sellout, and everyone, everyone hates him. Everyone. Tax collectors were dishonest people. Uh, they were known to overcharge people. Um, if you couldn't pay, they would, they would lend you money at exorbitant prices. Uh, they had no problem um, making a deal with rich people and ex exhort, uh, extorting uh, poor people. Had no problem with that. They were dishonest people. They were disqualified. So tax collectors in that time, because of being tax collectors, um, they would not be allowed to um, uh, give testimony as a witness in court. It was how vile they were. Like, they, they could not be trusted. So if you called someone into court and asked them, they, they were not allowed to serve as witnesses in a court proceeding. They, they were not to be trusted. Even their tithe, their tithe, what they give financially to the synagogue, would not have been accepted. They don't even, no thanks, we don't want any of that. They were disloyal. Though he was Jewish, he was considered a traitor because he worked for the hated Romans, and, uh, which would have meant that he turned his back on his entire family. Uh, we don't have time to get into that, but the implications of what the choice that he made to become a tax collector and to how that affected his family are just incredible. Like, his parents would have been destroyed. They, just by being related to him, would have been ostracized by their community, and they themselves would have been unclean. So he's disloyal, he's dis detested. Um, they were classified in the same social stratosphere as murderers and robbers. They were considered the worst. Jewish people detested them more than Roman officials or even soldiers. Sometimes children would spit on them while they walked by at the encouragement of their parents. He was disgraced, so again, by the extension of his family, he would have been ostracized, um, and then he was also defiled. He was considered an outcast and would have been excommunicated from the synagogue. According to the rabbis, there was absolutely no hope for a tax collector. There was no redeeming them. He was a man of the world. He was a man that didn't care about religion. He didn't care about his place in society. He didn't care about his friendships. 
He didn't care about his prestige. He didn't care about honor. He didn't care about respect. He didn't care about what God thought about him. He didn't care what, what the Pharisees thought about him. He didn't care what people in town or the synagogues would have thought of him. He didn't care about anything but money. That was it. He would have lived the way he wanted to live and would have been content being surrounded his entire life by the worst people in society, fellow tax collectors and sinners. And yet, in verse 14, as he, Jesus, was walking by this tax collector, the most defiled are you, getting, are you getting the point here, right? Like he's the, the most hated man. And you can understand, start to understand the weight of that. As Jesus is walking by his tax booth, he said to him, follow me. Follow me. And he rose and followed him. This is the most outrageous thing. <laughs> It is. Like this story is, it's, it's hard for us to feel the weight of this because we don't, we don't think about IRS agents the same way, right? I mean, no one's happy to have an audit, but it's a much different kind of scenario here where you begin to feel the weight of who this man is and the fact that Jesus stopped. When I'm sure the other disciples along with him would have been like, what in the world is Jesus doing? Like, why would he even stop to even make eye contact with this guy, Jesus stops and says these remarkable words, follow me. Follow me. Jesus called him to be a disciple. Um, Jesus knew that Levi had come to recognize his sin, um, not just because of the stigma of his job or his loss of friends or his career or the corruption or his abusive deeds, but his wretchedness before God as a hopeless, condemned violator of God's law. So when Luke, the gospel writer, adds that Levi forsake all, that he forsook all, means that there was no return for him. When he got up from that tax booth, there was no looking back. His life had changed. It's an incredibly dramatic event here. See, Capernaum was Jesus' home base, and so this guy would have been a, a guy, Levi would have been a guy that was kind of around Jesus. He would have probably heard at least who Jesus was, if not had heard Jesus' message or perhaps heard of a, a, a miracle that Jesus had done of healing someone, which we talked about last week. So this would have been something that, that Levi would have been familiar with, at least the stories of Jesus, but something happened in Levi's life that allowed him through the power of the Holy Spirit to get up from that tax booth and leave everything behind and follow Jesus. Somehow Jesus had found a place in Levi's heart. He's a repenter by God's work. He is a believer in the work of God. He has a heart that the Lord has changed and Jesus knows that. It's a remarkable thing about Jesus. See, he sees beyond the facade, right? He sees behind the resume and all the, all the 
stuff that we tend to put out front of our, our best foot forward or the best part of who we are. But Jesus sees beyond those things and sees who we are. This is the scandalous grace of Jesus. This is what Jesus does. The worst of sinners are called into an intimate relationship with the Savior of the world. The very next thing that Jesus does is fascinating. When Jesus gets a hold of a life of a sinner, he uses their relationships as an opportunity to spread more of this scandalous grace and love that only Jesus bestows upon us. He, he, we see this in verse 15. He says, as he reclined at the table in his house. So let's stop there just for a moment. The fact that he's in a tax collector's house is just beyond words. Like this is something that, that good Jews, especially a good Jewish rabbi, would never have done. They would never have set foot in such a vile, unclean place, let alone to recline at the table, which, which demonstrates a, a level of intimacy that Jesus is sharing with these tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus is there reclining at the table in his house, and it says many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. This would have made Jesus and all of the disciples ceremonial unclean. Like, no one in their right mind would do this. But here's Jesus spending time with, eating with, becoming friends with some of the most vile people in that day. So how did, how did they get there? I mean, it's really simple in that Levi is now a changed man. He's been called to follow Jesus, and now he's given his life over to Jesus. He's forsaken everything and is now following Jesus. And as a result, he looks around the people that he knows and is like, well, I'm a changed man. People need to know. And so he throws a party. And who's the people he knows? Well, it's the other tax collectors and sinners, the people in his circle, the people that if he were to invite were to come. No one else in his town, no one else in his area would have ever accepted an invitation to come to his home. But now he's invited these people to come and to share me with Jesus so he can share with them this changed life. It's interesting because the name Levi was changed to uh, the name Matthew, which literally means good news. You see, with a new identity, we also carry a new mission. When we move from sinners to sinners saved by grace, when we become the beloved, when we become part of God's family, he then, with that new identity, gives us a new mission to carry out. And so it begs the question, in in what ways has Jesus been calling you, a sinner saved by grace, to carry out his mission of love and scandalous grace to the people around you? See, it would have been really easy, and this is, I think, what happens for so many Christians today, is that when we come to faith in Christ, we, we decide that our old life is something that we have to get as far away from as possible, that that, that life we need to escape somehow, and we need to get rid of all those relationships. What, what Jesus is showing us here is like, no, those relationships are relationships that are worth redeeming. It is precisely because you had that kind of life, the, the kind of 
people that have been in your community that Jesus then uses his scandalous grace to give us mercy and grace, forgiveness, so that we can go back into that and then help rescue others. See, I, if I'm sick, I need a physician. And I, so I need to make sure that I take the physician to those who are sick. And so that new identity carries with it a new mission. And Jesus takes another seemingly unqualified sinner and transforms them into an evangelist and an apostle. Matthew would be a key player in the movement of the church and in God's kingdom. And that's what Jesus does in the life of a sinner. He allows him to be a testimony to the people around them. The other interesting thing that Jesus does, and this is more implied or I guess it's just an understanding as we read through the rest of the Gospels and the, and the account in Acts is, is the repercussions of calling a tax collector to become a disciple, apostle, evangelist for the start of the church. And that is, is that most people, if they were to look at, at Levi's resume, they would say tax collector, horrible person, like friend of sinner, like everything vile about him. That's what they would see on his resume. But it, it actually is despite his sinful past that Matthew is uniquely qualified to be a disciple. He, he was an accurate record keeper and a keen observer of people. He captured the smallest of details. And those traits served him well as he wrote the Gospel of Matthew 20 years later. I mean, you think about the Gospel of Matthew itself, right? It is, it is one of the most detailed Gospel accounts. It starts with the genealogy, which most of us don't get too excited about reading, right? It's usually one that we kind of skip through as fast as we can, oh, the genealogy of Jesus. But it is actually, uh, is brilliance, what Matthew does to write the genealogy of Jesus. He's writing to a Jewish audience in whom he's trying to convince that Jesus is the Messiah and takes the first chapter to lay out in detail Jesus' heritage that leads back to prove that he's the Messiah. It's genius. So, the things that his position as a tax collector actually made him an ideal candidate for writing the Gospel of Matthew. And here's a few reasons. One is that a tax collector would have been fluent in Greek. He would also have been literate, which, you know, we can't say that for all the disciples, right? In that day, it was not uncommon to be illiterate, so he was literate. He was able, he was used to keeping records. Uh, he was, uh, most likely, he was able to write in shorthand. Uh, therefore, he could be a great note-taker um, uh, at Jesus' teachings, he, um, Levi is a tribal name, so he would have known about the scribal tradition and been familiar with temple practices. Uh, he would have been a well-educated scribe, at least in a secular sense. And, and there's something else about this tax collector position that makes Matthew a particular 
particularly good candidate to be a writer of one of the accounts of Jesus' life. Being a tax collector, he, collector, he would have been familiar with all types of fraud and deceit. He would have been distrustful, more distrustful than most people. And this would have given him, uh, made him very cautious about trusting the word of someone. Therefore, his eyewitness testimony to the words and deeds of Jesus carries considerable weight because of that. So many of the things that you would think would be a defect in the resume of Levi are actually the things that Jesus used to glorify himself the most. Even the hardest, most difficult things in Levi's life are the things that Jesus somehow could highlight and use as a positive for his movement. You think about your own life and the difficult things that you've had to endure, whether it be loss or depression or been death or divorce or any of those things. I mean, anything that you can think of in your life that, is, that has caused you great harm. Are those things precisely that Jesus, in his grace, can use for his glory? Not only just the, the emotional and spiritual hardships that you have, but just think about the things in which you do, your gifts, your passions, your skills, There's also those kinds of things that that Jesus also uses to glorify himself. Have you ever considered that the job that you have, that the job that you work at, the job that you'll go to tomorrow morning is actually perfectly suited for you to become a disciple of Jesus? It is not by accident that you're where you're at or you have the skills or the gifts that you do. I actually saw this really well illustrated last week. So we had our joint service downtown, and everyone was eating lunch, and, and uh, uh, most, a lot of people had left, but there was a young woman that had come up to the food table. She was not part of Church of Beloved, but she'd come up to the food table. She was there at Northwestern studying, and, um, and, uh, and so Steve, Pastor Steve here, campus pastor here, approached her. And uh, got to just asked her what her name was, invited her to come and eat, those kind of things. And so they were, they were chatting a bit. And, she, and so Steve asked her, he said, well, you know, what are you, what are you studying? And she said, well, I'm, I'm studying to be an attorney. And he said, oh, well, that's funny. I'm an attorney. And it's led into a conversation. See, something that we, we feel like, well, how in the world could that ever be used to build God's kingdom or give glory to Christ in some way. Some of the things that you, that you have, the natural skills and the abilities, the hardships, all those things, they add up to a place that Jesus allows those things to be redeemed for his glory. And the last thing I want to share with you tonight is that as we return back to kind of the beginning of the message, and that is, is that sinners really are the only people that Jesus calls the only people that Jesus calls. It says in verse 16, it says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, it's a fair question, really. Right? It's a fair question. If, if, if tax collectors are so vile and sinful of a people, it's, it's fair for the scribes of the Pharisees to ask, like, why, why would Jesus be doing this? Why would he be hanging out with these guys? But this 
this account, what Jesus has done with Levi, has made it crystal clear that what he's preaching is completely opposite to what the Pharisees are preaching. What the Pharisees preach is that you work your way by means of self-righteousness, by what you do. His message is so different. It's so opposite. He feels comfortable with the worst of sinners. He offers forgiveness to the worst of sinners. And this is an outrage to the establishment. And so on the heels of this act regarding Levi, we get to verse 17, and it spells out exactly how incompatible his message is with the message of the Pharisees. He says in verse 17, he said, when, we, when Jesus heard this, when he heard the question of the Pharisees, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. See, they were so into self-righteousness, and Jesus preached grace. They were into denying that they were sinful, and he preached repentance from sin. They were proud of their religious heritage, and he preached humility. They were into external ceremonial, and he preached a transformed heart. They held tightly to the old, he offered the new. They loved the approval of men, he offered the approval of God. They loved ritual. He offered a relationship. This is the scandalous grace of Jesus. I think for many, we, we believe that it's only when we clean ourselves up, it's only when we do the right things or we can, we can have the right exterior, that we can say the right things or know the right language at church or do all the right things seemingly, right? that somehow will be accepted. And what we find from this, this story of Levi is that that's the exact opposite of how Jesus operates. It's not about you having the perfect resume. It's not about you having the, the best facade for everyone to see. No, Jesus only, only calls sinners to be his followers. Only. If, if you feel like you just want to keep faking it, and you feel like you can get it all together on your own, you feel like you can make it by being better and good and all those things, it's going to be really hard for you to follow Jesus. It's only when we admit that we're sinners that God can use us. It's only when we see our own depravity, as Levi did, and say, I'm, yeah, I know I'm the worst. Like, I know it. It's in those moments that God calls us. He walks right down the street to you. He sees you sitting there in that tax booth and is like, man, I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I know how bad it is. I know how broken you are. I, I, I know. And I still call you. That's the scandalous grace of Jesus. And he offers that to you today. He does. And for some of you, uh, you need that kind of freedom. You, you feel like you've been sitting in that tax booth and you've, maybe you don't feel like you're hated by the world, but maybe you hate yourself a whole lot. And you're just like, I just can't keep doing this. And you, you, you want Jesus to come and to call you out of that life, to call you to a place of freedom 
for you to experience that like you've never experienced. Maybe you're ashamed of your past or even your present, and, and, and Jesus is coming, and he's calling you, and, he's, and you're wondering if someone would love you, and, and Jesus is there again and again calling you to himself. So today could be a day of freedom for you. Jesus is calling us out of the tax booth, and he's asking us to follow him. For those of you who have been following Jesus for a while, um, you know, one, I think this is a good reminder for us all. We need to have the gospel preached over us um, almost every day. I wake up every day, and I think, oh, well, maybe today I can just muster up enough energy to, to do this on my own, right? And I have to remind myself that um, uh, I'm not called to be the older brother, right? That I'm, I'm actually called as a sinner, and Jesus continues to, to call me out every single day to follow him. And so I forsake everything, and I, I have to remind myself of that every day. Like, it's not on, based on my own self-righteousness. It's not what I can do, but it's Jesus calling me to himself. And so, for some of you, it's just a reminder that you are a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus. You are a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus. And that everything in your life, all the hardships, all the difficult things of your life, all the skills and all the positive things. So everything negative and everything positive in your life, Jesus actually can redeem all of those things and use them for his glory. So what are those things in your life? I want to give you a moment just to meditate and to think about that tonight. I don't assume that, um, that God is saying the same thing to everybody. I'm not going to kind of ascribe some kind of um, application to you. I know that God's word is um, powerful and it's speaking to each one of you. So there's probably something tonight from this message, from these words that have been read and preached over tonight that God is saying to you. So I'm going to give you just a, a moment of some quiet as the worship team comes and leads us so that you can just reflect and say, God, what is it that you want me to do with this? What is it that you, how do you want me to respond in obedience? I'll give you a moment just to pray and to think. <laughs>